Well, hey, why don't you grab your Bible and open it on up to Genesis chapter 4 and then stand to your feet in honor of God's word. And we're going to read the passage together this morning. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. God's word says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule it over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who find him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you that we don't stand on our own thoughts or our own authority. We stand on the authority of the scripture. And God, we open it up today expectantly. We, we open it expecting to hear from you and, and, and wanting to know what the, the point of the passage is. What are the truths here that we need to be exposed to, Lord? And, and would we yield our hearts to those truths? Would you give us a softness this morning, a moldability, a pliability to say, God, put your hands into our hearts and make them look like Christ. Change our minds. Conform us to the image of your son this morning. Lord, we love you, we honor you, we respect you, we trust you, we worship you, and now we want to listen to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat, guys. So for those of you that are new, we teach through books of the Bible here, and the, the reason we do that is because we believe God's word is what speaks, and our job is to get in and extract the truth of what that word says. So right now, we're teaching through the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, and we are on chapter 4. And so what I just read is what we're going to spend our time and our focus on basically this morning looking at. Amen? So Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, you guys probably have heard uh, of him. He, he wrote uh, a three-part book series called The Lord of the Rings. 
And like any good story, there has to be in a good story, there has to be a good struggle between good and evil, right? Because it's intrinsic to our human experience that there is a struggle between good and evil. And and in Tolkien's uh, writing of the Lord of the Rings, he he portrayed um, sin, I believe. He portrayed sin and evil in a particular way. He, He portrayed it through this small golden ring. Now, what's interesting about the ring is that when you first see the ring, it's not really particularly flashy. It doesn't really uh, sort of scream of importance or anything. It doesn't even seem like it would be a magic ring or a powerful ring. And that's part of the deception of the ring that Tolkien stitches into the narrative. And so this ring, it, 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 it has within it sort of this, this bent or this desire to rule those who are closest to it. And throughout the story, you see many people uh, who inter- interact with the ring thinking, well, maybe I can yield the ring to my agenda. Maybe I can yield the ring uh, for my purposes. But in the end, all of them, one by one, ultimately become mastered by the ring. The deception of it, seemingly, is that it just seems to be uh, not really that important or that powerful of an object. But it slowly but surely begins to sink its talons into the individuals and take them over. Now, Tolkien here was clearly trying to portray something. He was clearly trying to portray the relationship that mankind has with this thing called sin. And in his narrative, there is a line of men the line of Gondor. I'm sound like a nerd, but whatever. Okay, the line of Gondor. Uh, there is a line of men by which this ring has particular power to rule over. Do you remember in the beginning of the first movie? Uh, I don't know his name. The guy he cuts the hand of Sauron. What's his name? A Sildor, a bigger nerd than me. Yes. You just outed yourself, buddy. Okay, a Sildor cuts the hand, right? Anyways, he, the ring falls and, and he has the moment, right? He has the moment where he could throw the ring and destroy evil and be done with it, but he doesn't. The ring in that moment rules over him, so he keeps it for himself, and it slowly starts to destroy him and take him until it, it falls into darkness, and then, and then years later, his great-great-great-great-great-grandson is the main character of the movie, and the whole movie, um, what's his name, the main character? Come on. You're so on the spot right now. No, the main, uh, no, not Frodo. The king, come on. Aragorn, come on, yeah. Why didn't I put that in my notes? I don't know. Aragorn knows, this whole intro is a joke now. Aragorn knows that he has this particular bent towards being ruled by the ring, right? He knows it. And so he pays special attention to that ring, knowing that it could take him at any point. Okay, now, what does all that matter? It matters, okay, because Tolkien, uh, I think, had in mind the idea of sin's desire to rule humanity. See, sin is not a neutral substance. Sin is an aggressive presence, and it wants to rule you. Don't believe me? Well, listen to what God says in our text. Look at verse 7. He tells Cain, The Lord said to Cain, verse 6, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And we'll look at this more closely, but I just want you to see this. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And he says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But listen, you must rule over it. So in this moment, God is allowing Cain to see this reality that sin is 
out to rule him. It's not just this neutral thing that he can either, you know, choose to do or not. It's literally aggressively pursuing him. And Cain's decision, and the same decision that every human being has ultimately, is the decision to either rule or be ruled, which is the title of our sermon. Will you allow the ring to have mastery over you or will you master it? What will you do with this reality called sin? In the the biblical narrative that we're looking at, we've seen God create his universe and he created it good. And he created it good. But last week and the week following or before that, we started to see the, the, the fallenness of God's creation when sin was introduced to it. God's perfect garden Edenic world was shattered and, and fallen when sin was allowed to rule it now. And now, like we talked about last week, we're living in a Genesis 3 world, not a Genesis 2 world. We live in a Genesis 3 world, a world that is marked by death, a world that is marked by pain and suffering and sorrow. And as you read through the book of Genesis, you start to get these little glimmers of hope Because every so often you get a new Adam. But every time you get a new Adam and you think, well, maybe this is the Adam that will do right, that Adam fails. And in our text this morning, what we see is we see this little glimmer of hope because Adam and Eve bring forth into the world another Adam named Cain. In fact, they bring forth two new human beings, Cain and Abel, the first new humans. And there's a sense of excitement. But then as you're you're reading the passage, that excitement is quickly shattered when you realize that sin has metastasized, that sin has actually become the ruler, not only of Adam, but genetically has been passed down and now has become the ruler of Cain to the detriment of Abel. Sin is now ruling the world in Genesis 4. And the archetypical sin of murder, which is the destruction of a human being, the destruction of a human being, which is the image of God, this is one of the saddest sections in all of the Bible. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You're saying, how depressing. Okay, there's good news here. There's good news here. Here's what we're going to do. This morning, I want to talk about the subject of sin. And I want to talk about the fact that sin desires to rule you. I want you to see how sin desires to rule you, how sin makes steps to try to rule you, and then I want you to see how you can be free from it, where there is freedom to be had from it. So our outline is really going to look simple. In verses 1 through uh, 7, we're going to see how sin becomes your ruler. In verses 8 through 12, we're going to see what life looks like, like when sin is your ruler. And then lastly, in 13 through 16, we're going to see how you can be free from sin. You guys ready? Let's dive in. Verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Do I need to explain that? Okay, thank you. (laughs) Double click on the word new. You'll get it. Okay. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, this is really interesting. I just have to point this out, okay? In your translation, depending on what translation you have, it could be, depending on what translation you have, that the words uh, with the help of are in italics. The reason is, is because they're not actually in the Hebrew. The Hebrew actually reads like this. Adam knew Eve and his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man the Lord. Now, why would it say that? 
Isn't that interesting? Why would it say that? Well, I, I have a theory about this. Not my theory. Okay, a lot of scholars believe this. The theory is that Eve was just promised maybe even a matter of days before she had brought this child into the world, that God was going to send a Savior. We call it the Proto-Euangelion. It's the first good news. You see, God told Eve back in Genesis 3 that even though sin had come into the world, that he would send one who would crush the head of the snake. And so Eve, by God's grace, brings this child into the, the world, and what's her first thought? This is the one who will save the world. She has this optimistic hope that maybe Cain is the savior. Maybe Cain is the one that will crush the head of the snake. Maybe Cain is the one that will, that will actually rule over the sin that Adam and Eve were ruled by. Of course, we know that's not true. But Eve didn't. It's entirely plausible that that's what she thought. So she bore Cain and she bore Abel. Abel's name in Hebrew, by the way, is Hevel, and it's, it's basically a vapor. It's the same word used in Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's just, he's, he's a fleeting existence. And there's this, there's this glimmer of hope, right? So maybe Cain, maybe he's the one. Maybe Abel, he's the one. Well, Cain's a murderer and Abel's dead. So where is the hope for mankind? Sin, it seems, is just simply ruling. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So what's happening here? Basically, what's so interesting about this passage, by the way, is it's a worship service. It's a religious environment. And we think about sin, we think about murder, we think, yeah, that happens outside the walls of the church, right? That happens out in the egregious, in the bars, and in the brothels, and in the, the dark places of the world. But yet here, when we see the first archetypical sin of murder, it happens during worship. It happens in a religious environment. Isn't that interesting? Now, some commentators will try to say that the reason God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's was because Abel's was a sacrifice of blood, but that's not right. It doesn't say it in the text, and it's assuming the Mosaic law over the top of Genesis chapter 4. We have to read, as good Bible students, we have to read Genesis 4 within its context. And the reality is that the word here used for sacrifice is not an atoning sacrifice, it's a worship sacrifice. What that means is that Cain and Abel are bringing something that is meant to be out of the abundance of their heart, a worship to God. It's not as though God said contractually, hey, you better bring me a sacrifice or you're gone. That's not what's happening here. Cain and Abel, of their own volition, have decided to come and worship God by giving them a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of worship, not a sacrifice of atonement. But for some reason, as they both bring what seems to be outwardly good sacrifices to God, he looks at both and he rejects one and accepts the other. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. This is just a little side note here, by the way. Something worth noting. You live in a culture that tells you all worship is acceptable as long as it's worship. You want to worship Buddha, you want to worship Muhammad, you want to worship nature, you want to worship yourself. As long as you're worshiping, as long as, as, long as, you're, just, as, long as you're a spiritual person, that's okay. Biblically, can I just point out the obvious? God is clearly okay with certain kinds of worship and not okay with other, right? So there is an importance in the way in which we worship God. There is a, a clear importance. And for some reason, God is, is accepting Abel's and denying or rejecting Cain's. Why? 
Well, the New Testament actually tells us. It's helpful sometimes the New Testament gives us commentary. It tells us because Cain's was not done in faith. There was something wrong with the heart and the purpose behind Cain's sacrifice, whereas Abel's was done rightly, and that's why God accepts it. What's so interesting, though, is that you would never see that unless you were on the inside of it. You would never know that. The the worship would look the same. It would look exactly the same. Continue to read here. So Cain's face falls. He's pouting. He's angry. He's frustrated that the Lord has not accepted his sacrifice. In verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Those are some fascinating words. Now, before we plow on in the narrative, I want to stop for a second, and I want to give you guys three ways to let sin rule you, okay? So if you're, if you're interested in let, letting sin be your master, uh, here's three ways to do it from the text. Number one, cover your sin with religious activity. Cover your sin with religious activity. The soil of religious environments are the perfect breeding ground for unchecked sin. I hate bringing this up. It makes my stomach turn. But one of the heroes of the faith within the last couple of weeks Ravi Zacharias was just exposed for having heinous and egregious sin that carried on for decades in secrecy. And evangelicals are embarrassed, rightly so, by this. And the question comes up, how? How could that man have committed those sins while still standing on a stage in front of thousands of people and proclaiming such a good gospel? And the answer is, is that sin lives most comfortably under the facade and the covering and the overgrowth of what looks like religious piousness. It's classic. You know, Satan knows that. That's what's so interesting about this passage. It happens within a religious context. They're both worshiping, yet Cain, under the surface of his worship that looks just as good as Abel's, is hiding and harboring anger that is so powerful and so extreme that in just a moment he will lash out and drain the blood from his brother's life. All hiding underneath a religious environment. This is why religion is so toxic when it is false. When it is about externals. How can there have been so much sin happening within the, the, Catholic, the, the Catholicism that was unchecked? How can they do that? Well, because Satan knows he can get you to cover up your sin with just enough good things that make you not take it seriously. Sin's desire is to rule you. Take a lesson from Cain. If you want to let sin rule you, cover it up with a bunch of religious actions. I know this is a serious point, but this is a serious text, okay? The second thing, if you want to let sin rule you, is replace reality with self-pity. God comes to Cain, and Cain is, he's angry. Who's he angry at? Well, he should be angry at himself, right? He should be angry at himself because he, he knew that his heart was wrong. He knew that his sacrifice wasn't acceptable, but who's he angry at? Take a guess. He's angry at God. He's angry at his brother. He's angry at everyone else besides him. If you want to let sin rule you, all you have to do is you have to live in denial and pretend like everything that ever happens to you is someone else's fault. 
When God comes to you and he presses you and he convicts you, you just go, you know, that's because of this person. It's because of that person. And not take ownership. Cain refuses to take ownership of his own struggle, his own weakness. And when he's confronted, he doesn't repent. Here's the third way to let sin rule you. It's right in the text. I know this is going to sound like a weird point to write down, but just write it down. Pretend sin is a kitten. Can you remember that? If you want to let sin rule, you pretend it's a kitten. Look at what God says. God gives a really interesting metaphor here in verse 7. He says, if you do well, you will, not, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. What does he mean, crouching at the door? He, he's talking about a predatory cat. That's what he wants you to picture, a, a predatory cat. And what does a predatory cat do? What does a lion or a tiger or a cheetah or whatever, what do they do? They, they crouch. They get really low. They get really small so that, that you are not aware of their presence. And as they pretend to be small, they creep closer and closer and closer until they get so close that now you're theirs. Okay? That's what a predatory animal does. And what God, in all his wisdom, is doing, he's, he's lovingly, graciously letting Cain know, hey, keep treating your sin like it's just a small kitten over here in the corner, and it will rule you. See, I don't think Cain thought his sin was a big deal. I don't think he thought the anger in his heart was really that big of a deal. It appeared small. And the things that appear small grow to become very large. That's the reality. If you want to let sin rule you, pretend that it's not really a big deal. Pretend that the small things don't matter. Just let, him, just let him continue in your life. What do, wild, what do wild animals do in the wild in order to protect themselves from predators? Think about it. Uh, for, for one, they, they sound alarms, right? They're, they're aware of, of, of their surroundings, and then if one of them sees in the herd, I mean, I watch planet Earth, so I know, okay? Um, I'm like an expert, okay? Uh, so they, they hang out in packs, right? And if one of them happens to see that little bump in the grass that looks a little out of place or hears that little twig break, what do they do? They sound an alarm so that the whole pack can know, hey, watch out for this. That's what we need to do as Christians. That's what we need to do as Christians. What else do they do? They, they assume they're always hunted. You notice that? If you want to you you not be dinner? Just assume that someone's trying to make you dinner. And what Christians do is they get so stupid and they start to think that there is not a predator that is desiring to sink its teeth into your jugular. Okay? They, desire, they, they just think there's nothing after me. I'm good. I'm fine. Uh, no, you're not. Take a lesson from God's rule book. Hey, you are, you are a prey to something that wants to rule you. They, they consider their surroundings. They don't put themselves in a position where they can't flee or run away. They understand their weakness. This is the picture that God is trying to paint for them. He says, Cain, I'm telling you, bro, if you don't rule your sin, it will have you. And guess what happens? It has him. It rules him. It does. Now let's look at what life looks like when sin is your ruler. This is really what the rest of our text is about. So Cain commits this egregious sin, and we're going to see five consequences of sin's rule here. Okay, if you want to jot them down, five consequences of sin rule. Number one, sin hurts others more than you. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Who paid the price for Cain's sin? You could say it was Cain, but not nearly to the, degree, to the degree that it was Abel. 
you know, we think that our sin only affects us, but it doesn't. It affects us, and then it affects those closest to us the most. That's the reality. I, I, just, I just have to, to, to pull you into this for a minute. Imagine Adam and Eve, who, who maybe years prior, um, God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And they're thinking, what's, what's die? Think about it. What's die? They've never, no one's ever died. What's die? And then they eat of the tree because they were deceived, and nothing happens. They don't die. I can imagine for a second, you know, maybe Adam and Eve thought, hey, maybe we got away with something here. God said the curse of eating the tree was death, and we're still alive. And then fast forward the clock to the moment where Adam and Eve are out looking for their son. And they think they find him taking a nap, and instead they find his carcass, the, the blood drained from his life. And imagine immediately in that second, Eve and Adam go, that's the death that God said would come. And unfortunately, sin is so evil and so egregious that it is almost always those closest to us that pay the price. What life looks like when sin is your ruler is it looks like hurting the people that you love. That's what it looks like. Secondly, it looks like having to produce lies to continue in it. Take a look at verse uh, 9. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel? Your brother? Did the Lord know? Of course he knew. But he gives Cain an opportunity here to confess. He says, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And what does Cain say? He says, I don't know. Lie. Am I my brother's keeper? Here's the reality. You cannot continue in a life of sin and not lie. The two have to come together. Cain immediately goes fight or flight. Okay? And, and typically what we do is flight. And the way that we flee, we flee is we lie. It's just classic. It's the oldest Cain and Abel, okay? God comes to him and says, hey, what happened? He says, I don't know. Okay, that's another uh, byproduct of letting sin rule you is that you will live a life of deception. And that's why the gospel is truth because truth turns the lights on, right? The third thing that happens in a, in a, in a life of being ruled by sin is that sin soaks the ground and it cannot be washed away. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have, I, what have you done these words are, are, are sobering. What have you done? He said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is intense. God comes to Canaan and he says, I can literally hear the injustice of the murder of your brother in my ears incessantly. If that was the first time, imagine what God hears now. Imagine what God hears every ounce of blood that has ever been shed unjustly is pouring into the ears of a just, righteous, holy, perfect God. It's screaming to him. You know what nature tells on you? Did you know that? Remember when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and, and, and his um, followers or his fans at that point are, are laying down branches and they're saying, Hosanna, and the Pharisees come to him and say, rebuke your disciples. Remember what Jesus says? He says, if they don't do this, the rocks will what? cry out. You know, he's not talking about worship there. He's talking about the rocks are telling on you. The rocks are screaming to the father of the injustice of sin in this world. And it's crying out that a righteous father would come and fix what's broken because there is blood on the ground. I went to Israel 
And I went to Caesarea, and I stood in an amphitheater where thousands of Christians were eaten alive. And I stood in that amphitheater, and I looked at the dirt, and I'm telling you guys, I'm not a mystic. I could feel the injustice of that place. I could feel it. Injustice had happened on that dirt, and it didn't go away. God remembers it all. You want to let sin rule you, just assume that time or good works or whatever can make it go away. The reality is, is the sin has stained the ground. It's soaked in. It doesn't just go away. Fourthly, sin doubles your curse. Look at verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, God says, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Now, this is interesting. So God, as he's, as he's um, putting forth discipline to Cain for the, the murder of his brother, he says, Cain, the, the ground is cursed for you. But, but, but wait a minute. Wasn't the ground already cursed? Yes. The ground is now doubly cursed. Okay, now here's the reality. You live in a sinful world. You live in a cursed world. You live in a world that has cursed ground. But when you invite sin into your life and you allow it to rule you, you are doubly adding hard ground in your life. It's just hard. Ask anyone. It's hard. It invites cursing into your life. It just does. And that's exactly what's happening here. It doubles your curse. And then lastly, it brings separation. Take a look at verse 12. It brings separation. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So part of Cain's penalty is that now he is broken from community, not only with people, but even more severely with God. Now, any Christian in here knows that the biggest penalty for sin is that you can't pray the way you did right before you did it. It's the greatest motivator for righteousness for the believer is to go, man, I don't want to break that intimacy. The reality of Cain's sin is that it puts a separation between God and him, both in community and from God. So this is the reality. This is how sin rules you, and this is what looks like when, this is what it looks like when sin is ruling you. But is there any good news here? Is there any good news here? You don't get the good news without the bad news. Okay? That's the bad news. That's the bad news. Here's the good news, okay? The good news is there is freedom from sin, and I want you to see from our text how freedom from sin comes. But in order to do that, I have to start by telling you how it does not come. Can I do that? Let me tell you how freedom from sin does not come. First of all, it does not come through consequences. It just doesn't. Take a look at verse 13. Look at Cain's response. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, what's significant about Cain's words is not that he isn't sorry, because he is sorry, but why is he sorry? He's sorry because his sin has affected him and made him uncomfortable. And that is not repentance. When you get caught doing something and it hurts you, and you feel sorry, that's good. But that cannot change your heart. It does not have the ability to change your heart. Consequences are not sufficient to change your heart. They are sufficient to wake you up sometimes and realize how severe this thing is, but they're not sufficient to change the heart. Well, what changes the heart? What can change Cain's heart here? Because Cain seems to have been ruled by sin. Does it seem like that? That's what's happening? 
Cain is ruled by sin. It's had its way with him. What is the answer? How, do, how can he become free from it? Consequences are not doing it. Here's what Cain's not saying. He's not saying, God, I've sinned against you. Would you forgive me? That's not what Cain does. He says, this is too much for me to handle. My consequences are too much. Now, I want to talk about what can set you free from sin's rule. What can set you free? Look at verse 15 and 16. Then the Lord said to him, now this is surprising, by the way. This is not what you would expect. From a God who says, the blood of your brother is crying out into my ears day and night. This is not what you expect God to do, but this is what God does. Then the Lord said to him, in regards to his, you know, his grieving about everyone wanting to kill him, he says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. God is defending a murderer. Why would he do that? Why would God defend the one that just took the blood of Abel? It's scandalous. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. Whose mark? His mark. Lest any who find him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. (laughs) You know, a lot of times people ask the question, how could God be so cruel? You know, I mean, he kicks him out of the garden. He tells Cain that the ground's going to be doubly cursed for him. Are you, are you serious? Look at the kindness of God. Everything, should ha- everything points to the fact that God should have right there struck Cain down. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, right? Cain's a murderer. God in his justice should have struck him dead. But instead, what does God do? He comes to Cain. And he becomes his defender. He becomes his defender. You know, they they were so confused by Jesus. He was so confusing to the religious people. The Cains that had had murder in their heart covered by, by beautiful garments. They were so confused by Jesus. You know why? Because he went to bat for the prostitutes. He went to bat for the murderers. He went to bat for the zealots. He went to bat for the tax collectors. He went to bat for the filth, the canes of the world, those who had been ruled by sin. He went and he advocated for them. He stood up for them. He didn't stand up for what they did, but he came and he loved them. And the religious people looked at that and they said, what is wrong with this man? Doesn't he know who he's loving? Isn't he a prophet? The God that is loving Cain is the same God that walked this earth and stopped by a well and talked to a woman that had had multiple husbands and he told her that I'm here for you. I came for you. Why would God show so much kindness to Cain? Because God knows, and listen, because God knows that it is not punishment that leads men to repentance. It is kindness. God is pursuing the murderer, Cain. He wants his heart. He wants authentic worship. He wants change. And he does not do it only with consequences because consequences don't change the heart. You ever notice that with your kids? They don't change the heart. They only make them grieve about what they're missing. You know what changes the heart? Radical kindness. It doesn't make any sense why God defends Cain. But God knows that the best shot that Cain has at repentance is Cain experiencing the full wave of his kindness towards him. 
his unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. Only the heart that has first received the radical grace of God as its only option can truly bring sacrifice acceptable to God. You know what the difference between Cain and Abel's sacrifice was? Abel was gushing with worship for God. He just wanted to give God something. Cain was trying to contractually earn something. He wanted to give God something to get something back. That's the definition of false religion. I do something good, God gives me something good. I live a good life, God gives me good things. That's legalism. That's not worship. What God wants from Cain is he wants the thing that Abel already had by nature, and that is he wants Cain to come to God and worship him because he's so thankful for everything that God has done for him. And his kindness is the access point into that. But here's the thing, guys, and this is so, so important, so please tune in. The kindness of God is not a cheap kindness. It is a costly kindness. There is a false doctrine in our Western context right now that is saying that God didn't have to pay for sins. He could just forgive them. That is wrong. God is not kind to Cain because God is a big mushy blob of feelings. God is not kind to Cain because he just, he just feels bad for him, you know? And he just, I'll just forget it, Cain. I know your brother's blood is screaming to me from the ground, but don't worry about it. I'm just a forgiving God. I'm just a big, you know, kind, mushy God. And I just forgive you, Cain. Is that what's happening here? No. No, it's not. If you don't believe me, read Revelation. See what God does to sin. How can God come to Cain with such kindness? It's not a sloppy kindness. It's not a, it's not a cheap kindness. It's not an emotionally pushed kindness. It is a costly kindness. God can come to Cain with kindness because God knows that the murder of Abel will happen again and that that murder will pay the debt that Cain was supposed to pay. You see, the same thing that happened to Abel was going to happen again but it was going to happen to God's son. And God knew it was going to happen to God's son. And when God comes down to Cain and he interfaces with him with kindness, he knows that God will send his son into this world in order to become the able to pay for the blood of Cain's like you and me. That's the beauty. This blood on the ground can't be washed away. The blood in your life, it can't be washed away. You can try. Go ahead. Spend the rest of your life trying to give to charity and do good things and, and try to cover it up. You can't do it. The blood is already soaked into the ground. The only thing that will relieve the guilt of Cain is a greater covering. It has to be covered. And that's what Hebrews chapter 12 says. It says that the blood of Jesus speaks louder than the blood of Abel. Think about that. Can you just let that hit you for a minute? The blood that is screaming to God, accusing you of your sin, is covered by a louder voice. The louder voice is the blood of Christ that has covered and paid for your sin. Jesus let himself be murdered by his religious older brother so that Cain could be forgiven if he received it. Isn't that amazing? 
God took the very hatred that was in the heart of Cain and he let it play itself out through the Pharisees and the Romans and they literally put Christ on the cross with the same hatred in their heart, the same anger in their heart, the same jealousy, the same covetous. You know why Cain killed Abel? He was jealous. You know why the Pharisees killed Christ? They were jealous. God used the jealousy that was in Cain's heart to accomplish salvation for Cain. Isn't that amazing? God used the jealousy and the hatred and the wickedness that was ruling the Pharisees in order to make salvation possible for the Pharisees. What an incredible God. Is anybody excited about this? Am I the only one excited up here? Okay, thank you. I just want to make sure you guys are alive. Okay. This is really good news. Because I don't know about you. you know, I read this and I don't think, oh, Cain, what a dirtbag. You know what I think? Oh, I'm Cain. I am Cain. Jesus made that abundantly clear. If you've even had anger in your heart against your brother, you've killed him. I am Cain. You are Cain. You know who Abel is? Christ. That's the reality. The, 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 the champion of this text is Jesus. He has made it possible for us to be forgiven. God comes down and puts his mark of grace on Cain because he knew he was going to pay the price for it. It's such good news. But lastly, I need you guys to see something, okay? The last thing in the world I want you to walk out here thinking is, okay, I have to rule over my sin. That was the point of Sam's sermon. What was the point of Sam's sermon? Rule your sin. And then you get in the car and you commit a sin and you think I've failed. And when that happens, and it will, I want you to remind yourself of something. You can't. You can't. You can't rule your sin. Well, then why is God telling, telling Cain to rule his sin? Be, because you have to fight it. But here's the reality. You can't rule your sin. What you can do is you can believe the reality that one person came and did rule sin. And the victory is not in your ability to battle, although as a Christian you better battle because it wants you. Your victory is not in your ability to defeat sin. Your victory as a Christian is in Christ's victory that he did rule sin. It is defeated. So when you do sin, you come to God and you say, Lord, thank you that I am Cain, but you are not. That Jesus, you were the Cain we needed. You were the Adam we needed. You are the Savior of the world. And you lived for me. And you give me that righteousness. And now because of that, I choose to live rightly out of the victory of Christ, that it is finished. Sin is defeated. The way you rule over your sin is to live out of a belief and a response to the good news that Jesus has accomplished victory. That's why he said it was finished. He ruled your sin. And he is ruling your sin. That's really good news. The ring, if you remember in the introduction, okay, the ring will rule you unless it is destroyed from whence it came. Unless it is destroyed from the inside out, it will continue to rule you. That's what the whole point of the movie is about. The gospel is that God himself came into a cursed and fallen and broken, sin-ruled world and destroyed sin's power from the inside out. Proverbially, he cast the ring into the fire. It is done. There is only an echo now. Since power has been defeated, and Jesus proved it because he rose from the dead. 
consequences of sin is death, and death lost. It's been defeated. But I need you to see something here because I don't want to give you false assurance. It doesn't say what Cain did with the kindness that was shown to him. It doesn't say. It's open-ended. There's a dot, dot, dot after the end. God was immensely kind to Cain. And the question that should be on all of our minds is, did Cain let the goodness of God change his heart or did he continue to run away from God and let sin rule him? And the same question is before you right now. Will you continue to let sin rule you or will you believe the gospel and start walking in the victory of Christ's reign? Cain, the story of Cain and Abel, it's, it's the first egregious archetypical sin, but it repeats itself over and over and over again. We cover our sin with religion. We expect God to do something for us. He doesn't. We get angry. We get frustrated. We take it out on our brother. We take it out on our kids. We lash out. We're separated from community. We're separated from God. But remember, the good news is that God steps into Cain's story. He steps into his story, and he shows kindness. The question is, what do we do with that kindness? Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that it doesn't return void. Lord, there's so much truth in that passage. God, I approach, I approach it humbly. I, I just, I don't want to be ruled by sin. I pray that we would be Christians that, that take it seriously, but that we would ultimately find our victory not in bringing a better sacrifice, but in remembering that, Jesus, you were the perfect sacrifice. The freedom we have is in you. Thank you for the gospel this morning. Thank you for the rest that comes in it, the peace that comes in it, the kindness that comes in it. That we are all Cain, but you stepped into our story. And with blood on our hands, Lord, you have kindly put your mark on us. And Lord, we receive that mark by faith in the gospel. Lord, may we not be those that reject that good news. May we be those that embrace that good news, God. And Lord, I pray right now earnestly that if anyone in here knows that they have not received the kindness, received the good news, received your mark, received your perfect life in place of theirs, Jesus, I pray that they would have the freedom to do that right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would come in, that you would do work, rearrange their heart, that they would come talk to a believer in this room, ask questions, begin to grow, get baptized, begin becoming a follower of you, Jesus. Lord, we love you, we honor you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.